everyone, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, evolution, just the strange side of nature in general. Absolutely. And this time around, we're talking about pets, aren't we? Yep. All right. Sounds good. How was your research for this one? Well, I knew what I was going to do from the start, but there's just so much to pick from. I mean, if you broaden pets into just domestication of animals or even just interactions of people with animals, that's pretty much all of history. There is a lot of that, but it really depends on where you draw that line. There's a real gray area there. I guess there is a gray area to pets and what can be counted as a pet. Does it strictly have to be an animal if it's like a really energetic plant? Like what? The plant from Little Shop of Horrors? Like what What are we talking about here? Like a Venus flytrap? I'd say that's more of a pet than like coral. Yeah, maybe. Or a sponge. I'd say they're about equivalent. Yeah, I guess they're on par. Yeah. The most active plants are kind of equal to the lamest animals. I wouldn't even say that because the most active plants are really, really interesting and some of the lamest animals are just boring. They don't do much. They just kind of sit there and you're like, all right, well, I guess you're just there. Not much else to discuss here. But anyway, I think you're up this time around. Yep, I am up and I picked something pretty common. So I really hope you didn't pick it also. So I was a little bit... uh confused about where we draw the line with pets specifically so i kind of played it safe and went with animals that are definitely pets but it has more of a historical bend to it than like an actual ecology bend yeah that's what is mine i'll explain but go ahead so i'm going to be talking about a pet that i think most people either experience or have at least heard of before it's a kind of childhood disappointment slash wonder all in one you know where i'm going is it a rock? No, I did not do an episode on pet rocks. No, I'm going to be talking about the history of sea monkeys. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, cool. It's sea monkeys. Yeah. Everyone had sea monkeys. Yeah, of course. Did you have sea monkeys? No, I did not. My parents got us a dog. Okay, well, I didn't get a dog, so I got sea monkeys. All right, well, they sound cool at least. Yeah, so I'm mainly going to be going over the history of the sea monkeys, but I'll, of course, also tell you what they actually are and their biology and how they came about. So the idea of sea monkeys begins back in the late 50s with a man by the name of Harold von Braunhott. He had a eclectic professional history as he worked as a motorcycle racer, an agent for various circus performers, and had a variety of patents under his belt. I'm shocked to find out that a guy named Harold von Bromhardt had a somewhat eclectic personality. One day, he walked into a pet store and saw a bucket in the corner and had some small little invertebrates swimming around. These were no magic or elusive beasts from a faraway land. They were brine shrimp, and they were actually just there to feed the fish in the pet store. But Harold instead saw opportunity. As you do when you see brine shrimp, what? He saw money. He saw the power of marketing. So I'm going to put a pause on the history, and now I'm going to tell you what brine shrimp actually are. Okay, sure. Uh, anyone who's into fish keeping has definitely heard of these guys. So brine shrimp, or Artemia salina, are a small crustacean and group of invertebrates sometimes known as fairy shrimp. They don't really look like shrimp. They have about 11 pair of legs and a small tail. They more or less look like a really tiny centipede. And most species stay under half an inch long at most. And brine shrimp are incredibly nutritious, which is why they've been a staple in the fish keeping hobby and fish hatchery industry for decades. Brine shrimps were by no means anything special. They've been around a long time. People have known about them. Their eggs are also really easy to store, aren't they? Absolutely. You can ship them all over the place, which is a huge plus. Yes. Like I said, they are high in protein, lipids, and unsaturated fatty acids. All that good stuff. Oh, yeah. The fish love them. And that's the thing about brine shrimp. They have no real predator defenses, and they're super nutritious. So, how do they survive? They make a lot of themselves. 
Well, yes. I mean, that that's just a go-to for any animal. If you're going to die, just put out a lot of babies. Yeah, exactly. You just proliferate like crazy. That seems to work reasonably well. Well, as the name suggests, brine shrimp live in very saline waters, with salinities too high for most other animals to live in. While they prefer salinities of 60 to 100 per mil, they can go all the way up to 250. So this is like way higher than seawater. So high that pretty much most things that can eat them can't stay in the same water. You're not going to find fish in these really saline habitats. So rather than evolving to deal with a world of animals that want to eat you, they just opt to live in habitats that so few animals can tolerate that they're fine. One example of this is the Great Salt Lake in North America. This is home to thousands of brine shrimp. The majority of the lake does not have any fish in it. I think there are a couple of exceptions near some springs, but for the most part, nothing. Just swim about and eat various planktonic algae and do their thing. And the algae can, of course, survive those high, high salinities as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the algae is grown there. It's bacteria. Bacteria, algae, protists, they can survive anywhere. Yeah, they are really, really versatile. Yeah, you'll always find some sort of microbiology somewhere. I mean, they live in hot springs. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Now, brine shrimp are always reproducing. Like you said, that's the first major strategy to survive. Some can even reproduce parthenogenically, which is without males. So the females are essentially creating clones of themselves because they're genetically identical to the mothers. And they can only birth females. However, when certain chemical stresses are introduced, like increasing salinity or decreasing oxygen, these are usually signs that the water is evaporating, they lay special eggs with a coating known as cysts. Like you already mentioned, these cysts can survive desiccation and they can lay dormant for years. I couldn't really pinpoint how long they last exactly. Most of the conservative estimates are just a couple years. And some of the really extravagant ones claim they can be dormant for a hundred or so. So this is kind of like the equivalent of covering your baby in some kind of coating during a really extreme drought so that it can survive for decades and eventually come back to life once the rain returns. I was thinking more of the plot of Superman. <laughs> you put him in a little shuttle and you just push him away. Or you put him in a little shovel and you bury them and then you wait for everything to settle again and they'll just sort of hatch out no matter what's happening i feel like uh what's his name i'm drawing a blank marlon brando i feel like marlon brando is narrating the whole thing no matter what so it's unfathomable it's it's, un it's unfathomable it's, it's, without fathom it's, it's without fathom i'm your space father and i'm your space stepmom i've had some work done lately <laughs> These cysts can survive desiccation and lay dormant for years. When the water dries up and all the adults die, there's still plenty of eggs waiting to hatch after it rains again. This is a process known as cryptobiosis. And that's why they're often used as food. Not only are they super nutritious and very prolific, you can store the eggs for future use. So you can go to the fish store. You don't have to buy live brine shrimp. You can just buy a bunch of these eggs, hatch them out as you need them. Yeah, super convenient. And that's about it to brine shrimp. I mean, I could rattle on. They're still very important in a lot of toxicology studies, a very common lab animal. Lots right. of research on them, uh, testing how they react to certain environmental stressors, chemicals, etc. But that's all we need to know for this story. Yeah. Also, a side note, it's really interesting how Interesting, but not necessarily surprising how a lot of the animals that we use a lot in our laboratory studies are just the ones that are really, really easy to raise and keep alive in captivity and aren't necessarily Why is that surprising. Well, it's not. I said it's not surprising. It's interesting that it's interesting, though, because those species are not necessarily the ones that are most representative of wild species. A great example of this are zebra finches, right? Zebra finches are super easy to raise in captivity and they breed like crazy because all you have to do is give them water. They're desert birds. So whenever there's water around, they take advantage and start breeding. So when we give them water, they do exactly that. But because of this unusual mechanism and their relatively unusual biology, 
the fact that zebra finches are used as a model species in a lot of studies on birds might not necessarily be a good thing or the most accurate way to study the effects of certain of certain items or certain compounds on birds. So Yeah, I think that's certainly true, but you kind of have to give a little leeway for the fact that this is what we can affordably replicate the studies with. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's just interesting to consider, you know? It is interesting to consider. I, as of the time recording, I work in a pathology lab. And of course, most of the work we do are with rats. But occasionally you also have studies on things like monkeys. Now, you can't do studies with monkeys all the time because they're monkeys. You, there's so much work that go into them. They can open doors and stuff and they, they can attack you. Right. But a rat's right. a rat. They're just a little friend. I love rats. Yeah. Anyways. So now that we understand the biology of sea monkeys, we can get back to their rise to fame. And I will just be calling them sea monkeys from here on out. They are brine shrimp. But sea monkeys are just more fun. Right. You're just trying to make them sound cool. Mm-hmm. So Harold von Braunhut had a variety of patents to his name. X-ray glasses. I don't know if you've seen those before. The old mail away back of the comic book. They just made your vision kind of blurry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they were guaranteed to see through clothing. That was his hair growing monsters. Also his. It was just a picture of a troll that grew minerals on them when you added water. What? Yeah, it was literally just a card. I don't know. Some sort of crystals grew on it. Calcium carbonate, maybe. Okay. Uh, Crazy crabs. They were just hermit crabs in a cardboard (laughs) box. (laughs) And invisible goldfish. I don't have to explain that last one. Is he just selling you a tank of water? Just a bowl. (laughs) (laughs) So this guy is a snake oil salesman, basically. Yeah, kind of. But it's part of the... He does it in a charming way, I guess. Well, of course, a snake oil salesman has to be somewhat charming. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy the snake oil. Well, at least with the invisible goldfish, you are guaranteed to not see the goldfish. (laughs) So... The sea monkeys launched under a different name, Instant Life, and their success was an instant failure. Really? Why? Not really, but it was a very slow start, primarily in marketing. The issue at the time was very few stores actually wanted to sell sea monkeys. Even though things like ant farms were extremely popular at the time, there's a recent product where killifish eggs were sold. And these eggs can actually go dormant like brine shrimp eggs also. However... This was not really fully thought out, and the yields were very unsuccessful, so it left a lot of bad impression on retailers. So they didn't really want to touch the sea monkeys. Hmm. Okay. So Harold took a different approach to this by selling directly to children through comic books, and this was actually an uncommon practice at the time. Okay. All right. This is starting to sound a little more sketchy. So he purchased advertisements on millions of comic book pages. This is at least according to Harold, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, He did it on everything. Romance comics, superhero comics, comedy comics, whatever he could get his hands on. And to further sell the idea, he got the help of famous illustrator Joe Orlando. And this guy would later go on to become president of DC Comics. Really? Okay. And this is what most people imagine when they think of sea monkeys. Obviously, they're not going to show you what they actually look like, the tiny little invertebrates with the tails. No, no, no. They're these aquatic orange primates with tails and three antennae on their head, swimming around and laughing in an underwater castle. Sometimes they're wearing little suits. There's a mother, a father, and a little baby. You know, they have a whole little community. But really, they're, you know, like at most a quarter inch long. At most. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, kids are going to see these drawings of sea monkeys and want to buy it. And these imaginative advertisements, they worked wonderfully and led to a lot of disappointment when kids saw what they were actually getting. Of course, kids are not quite smart enough to read the tiny little caption at the bottom that says not drawn to scale. I don't even know if that existed at the time, the not drawn to scale. (laughs) Might have predated a lot of these marketing regulations. That's probably true. Yeah. 
Uh, of course, kids would see this in the back of the comic book, go, I have to get this, and they would mail away, I believe it was 54 cents at the time, and then they would receive their very own sea monkey kit. Which consisted of what? It would consist of, you know, you'd have a little plastic container for them, and then you'd have these three packets. These packets were the secret ingredients, and they couldn't tell you what was in them, and that was their patent. Okay, but what was in them? So here's the thing. They advertised this as instant life. This is misleading because, granted, these eggs can hatch out after a very long period of cryptobiosis. It's not instantaneous. It'll probably take about a day. But they wanted to sell the illusion that it's happening right away. So these kits claim they came with three packets called water purifier, eggs, and food. The first packet contained the salt and the water purifier, but it also had eggs in it. So you're actually adding eggs on the first day, but you don't know. The second packet adds more eggs, some yeast for them to eat, and also some dye. The very light dye allows you to see the hatched larvae from the previous day. So a gullible child will think that the sea monkeys just appeared instantly as soon as they added that packet to the water. Okay. In reality, they put it in there the day before, but the larvae were just so tiny, they couldn't recognize it. Got it, got it. Okay. And then the third packet was actually food. I think it was just some algae and yeast, you know, a little microfauna for them to eat. A little sustenance. Yeah, a little something, a little snack. Keep them going. You could also just put them in a sunny window and let it grow algae. I'm pretty sure that would feed them too. But there's a problem with the lifespan of the sea monkeys. In the wild, their whole life cycle can be completed in 8 to 10 weeks. This is partially also why they're really useful for certain laboratory studies. You can witness their entire life cycle in a relatively short period. But this left a lot of disappointed kids when the sea monkeys disappeared as soon as they hatched. This is probably the most controversial part of this because I read a lot on this and I did a very deep dive. Harold claimed that he and biologist Anthony D'Agostino created a hybrid brine shrimp known as Artemia NYOS, named after the New York Ocean Science Laboratory. Apparently, these super sea monkeys could live up to two years instead of two months. I cannot find any evidence this actually exists. But every article I've read on sea monkeys accepts this bit as a fact. When it, we already established that Harold is known for his exaggerations. Yeah, that's very strange. So Harold had already claimed that the sea monkeys could be hypnotized, do tricks, or even play baseball. I did a surprisingly deep dive to see if the Artemia NYOS hybrid actually exists, or if they're just regular brine shrimp. And like I said, most articles on the history of sea monkeys kind of just accepted it as fact without really looking into it. I even found a few research papers on Google Scholar that cited them as Artemia NYOS instead of just brine shrimp, Artemia salina. So people, are they should not take this as fact. Uh, apparently, they're not aware that the same guy was talking about how these Artemia could play baseball. Or the fact that they look nothing like the actual pictures. This is the guy that sold invisible goldfish and made a profit. In his spare time, he's sewing clothes for the emperor. So I found the most information about these supposed sea monkey hybrids on online forums of all places dedicated to sea monkeys. There's a lot of posts on the Sea Monkey Reddit. I didn't realize that would be a really popular subreddit. It's come up on there many, many times, and the community largely dismisses it as bullshit. When you consider the time and effort that goes into developing and maintaining a strain of any laboratory animal, it doesn't make sense because Harold largely started this kind of in his backyard for the longest time. Like he, he was doing this in kind of like a shed. Not to mention, you can't just make a hybrid because the more you breed it, it's going to kind of fizzle out. If it's a hybrid between two species, the F1 generation, that's going to be the first 50-50 hybrid. Anything after that is going to be different. Right, right. Even if it's a basic dominant recessive cross, you're going to 
slowly de- decrease the, the proportion of heterozygotes that you have in the population if you keep interbreeding them. Unless you're doing some fancy genetic engineering, taking some genes from one animal, putting it into another. Right. What you're going to end up with is you can only breed the two different brine shrimp species and you can only sell their larva, which is really not a sustainable business model. Right, right. Oh, wait, were the, um, were the hybrids infertile? Were they non-viable? No, uh, from what I read, they, the supposed hybrids can keep breeding. Okay, got it. Not to mention there's actually no patent for this hybrid either, and you can patent hybrids in certain breeds of animals. Nor is it really mentioned in any of the sea monkey patents. So I'm just chalking this up as another one of Harold's lies, but for some reason some people still accept this one as somewhat true. Right, it sounds like they don't really have the uh, the same kind of vigor about sea monkeys that you do to yeah. cause you to do this deep dive. I watched a 20-minute YouTube video where a guy really went into this and tried to did his own experiment where he compared brine shrimp, regular brine shrimp, to sea monkey hybrids. I put in too much work into this section alone. I should have just said <laughs> it's bullshit. Don't trust this guy. They did do something to make them live longer. I bet they just altered some of the chemicals in the packets. You know, maybe they changed some of the dechlorinators or something like that. I also couldn't even find information on the biologist, Dr. D'Agostino. And in one New York Times article where they tried to interview him about it, his wife claimed he was too sick to talk about the hybrid sea monkeys. So I'm just going to assume they're just regular brine shrimp, not some sort of super brine shrimp. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I believe of him being sick. Yeah, a bit suspicious. Regardless of this, sea monkeys exploded in popularity and a range of products came out over the years, all of them somewhat quirky in nature. You have a huge variety of different tanks, some with themes like outer space or underwater castle or sunken pirate ship. And then you even had those other really, really fancy sea monkeys that were the invisible sea monkeys. (laughs) That's where they get you. You're guaranteed to not see the sea monkeys. Right. <laughs> They're really good at staying invisible. <laughs> you had sea monkey watches. You actually keep them in the watch. They say you can put two sea monkeys in the watch for up to 24 hours. Wow. Don't okay. do that. Don't, don't do that. They're not lasting much longer than that. There were sea monkey race tracks. You could actually put one in each lane and see which one gets <laughs> to the end first. There was a short-lived TV series in the 90s starring Howie Mandel as a mad scientist who accidentally grew three sea monkeys to the size of people. These sea monkeys, of course, look more like giant orange Voldemort burn victims than they did the fun, lovable characters on the side of the box. Yeah, of course. And then um, about halfway through the show, he just starts dousing all of them with hand sanitizer just to make sure they stay clean. (laughs) He did not like when they touched him. Nope, not at all. Yeah, that show lasts about 11 episodes. I'm surprised it lasted that long. I I read one article where uh, it said the studio decided to cut costs by canceling the show. <laughs> well, <laughs> they're, they're not wrong. <laughs> not wrong. I just thought it was an odd way to phrase it. Right. They're cutting costs. They're just cutting all the costs. <laughs> you can still watch some of the clips on YouTube. They're uh, interesting. Oh, I bet they are. <laughs> so even today on the Sea Monkey website, you can find products like Sea Monkey Banana Treats, Sea Monkey Plasma 3. I think it's just another food packet. I don't really know what that one is. A diploma from Crustacean College. You can get a PhD in, oh, I don't remember what it was called exactly, but for $20, they'll send you a diploma from the Sea Monkey College, and you'll get a PhD in Sea Monkey Research. Oh, okay. What's sad about that is that there are definitely people who have done PhDs on Sea Monkeys before. No, they did them on brine shrimp. Let's respect them a little bit. (laughs) Okay. They did their PhDs on brine shrimp. And then somebody online went and bought for $20, bought the certificate and thinks that they put in just as much work and they're just as valid. (laughs) Hey, you think you're hot shit? Yeah, I got one too. (laughs) Look at me. I'm also a doctor. 
<laughs> What's that? You got it from Harvard? I got it from Harold himself. <laughs> uh, what else can you buy? You can buy a CD album about animal rights and veganism, I think. Uh, I couldn't find any demos of it. And lastly, and my personal favorite bit, you can buy magic sand from the home of the sea monkeys. You want to guess where the sand comes from? Atlantic City. The Potomac River. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Harold was from Maryland. He lived in Indian Head. Did he really? Yep. Oh, boy. So it's clear that the legacy of the sea monkeys will never really die out. You can still purchase them to this day. There's even a dedicated community of people who collect and raise all kinds of different sea monkey kits. And hmm. now that I covered the sea monkeys themselves, I have to get into the controversial part. Conveniently, all of this is left out on the official Sea Monkey website. <laughs> well, you decide Harold von Braunhut as a eccentric genius at best. At worst, it's pretty bad. So everyone knew him as a bit of a con guy, but I'd say it's all in good fun, kind of, a little bit. After the success of the Sea Monkeys, he developed a patent for the Kyoga Agent M5 a type of extendable baton perfect for, quote, if you need a gun but can't get a license. This in and of itself isn't awful, but he was donating $25 of each unit sold to the legal defense of Richard Butler, who was the head of the Aryan Nations, and that was $25 oh, for each unit no. sold only to the Aryan Nation supporters. Oh, no. So you're saying that the guy who founded Sea Monkeys was a white supremacist? He's not just a white supremacist. This was not a one-off event. Harold had deep ties to several white nationalist organizations. He helped purchase firearms for the KKK in Ohio. He was a regular at Aryan Nation World Congress. Sometimes he even got to light the cross on fire. Okay, that's f***ed up. He had an anti-Zionist newsletter that he published under a pseudonym, yet still used his actual business address. So, <laughs> no question in the who was doing it. <laughs> he was even reported as saying Hitler wasn't a bad guy, he just got a lot of bad press to one of his business associates. Okay, wait, so, back up a step though. This guy was... Giving a pseudonym and then using his actual address? He was using the same address that he was selling uh, Sea Monkey products from. I believe it was the same P.O. box or something like that. Oh, wow, that's that's really bad. That's, yeah. that's a fair amount of ineptitude. Didn't have to dig deep to figure out who that was. <laughs> nope, not at all. Here's the other thing, too. What did the Sea Monkeys ever do to be associated with this asshole? Like, they're just sitting there in salty water, you know, eating algae, breeding when they can. They don't need to be associated with white nationalists. Like, they had no say in this. No, you know? they didn't. They would have been perfectly fine just swimming around in that little jar. Right, exactly. They didn't do anything wrong. Honestly, maybe it was better if the sea monkeys never existed because he donated a lot of money to these groups. Yeah. That came from the sea monkeys. Yeah, exactly. I don't think the x-ray goggles really... Actually, no, he sold a surprising amount of the x-ray goggles. I'm not going to lie. That worked somehow. What horrible thing did he do with that money? Did he like use it to lobby against child labor laws or something? I decided this is where I, I cut off. I'm not saying any of his quotes. That would be wise. Yeah, but you can Google these if you really want to. Be warned, they are all pretty harsh. Uh, yeah, that, that would be expected, I think. And you know what the craziest part about all this? What's that? Harold von Brauhat was born Harold Nathan Brauhat to a Jewish family. He was Jewish and a neo-Nazi. Well, all right then. He changed his name from Nathan the Von to sound more German. Didn't expect that one. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's odd. There's just so many layers to this. Yeah, wow. Some are more twists than an M. Night Shyamalan movie in this story. Honestly, it's better twists. Have you seen Old? No. Have you seen, oh, what was it? Uh, the visit, Some where the kids visit their grandparents. The twist is, it's not their grandparents. Okay, I gave up on 
M. Night Shyamalan actually producing a good movie after the happening. Honestly, I'd say he only had two. Well, that <sighs> the sixth sense, the village and signs is OK until the twist comes. You're forgetting about Unbreakable. That movie oh, is objectively yeah, you know, good. You know what? OK, I actually did enjoy Split, too. Forgot about that one. Yeah, not not glass, not the weird connection of the two. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I Like I said, I gave up on him after the happening. That movie is was supposed to be good, but it's just I mean, it's incredible, but not in a good way. Not in a good way. Hey, hey, Aaron, you like hot dogs, don't you? <laughs> they get a bad rep. They got, they got a cool shape. They got they got protein. Genius writing. He's done it again. <laughs> where does he? Th- where does he come up with it? Where? So, Harold died back in two thousand three. You don't have to worry about him causing any more trouble. And since then, there has been a lot of changes to the company. His widow Yolanda Signorelli von Braunhut seems like a decent person, genuinely. In an interview in 2016, she was in a legal battle for the rights to the sea monkeys. She was staying in their old estate without running water or electricity. And she claims, at least, that she tries to be inclusive to all people. And this stems from her animal rights and strict veganism beliefs. Again, she also claims that her and Harold never discuss things like political and racial views at the home. So, uh, I don't know. How do you not know, you know? So, I guess... What we're ending with is, should you buy sea monkeys? Should you buy your kids sea monkeys? I still say yes, because there's dozens of off-brands selling brine shrimp under different names like Aqua Dragons or Instant Mermaids in case you don't want to support Harold's legacy. You can even just buy the brine shrimp eggs at your local fish store. But I still think the excitement and immediate disappointment of sea monkeys is almost a childhood rite of passage. It wasn't for me. I never had sea monkeys, so. Well, I'd still say for every 10 kids that were disappointed by this marketing scheme, there's probably one or two that actually went on to pursue a life as a scientist inspired by the amazing biology of the brine shrimp. So if this little event got some kid interested in science, then I say maybe something good came of it after all. Well, sure, there's there's a silver lining for every cloud, but let's not forget that, that cloud is a giant financial machine that supports white nationalism across the nation. That's why I say get an off-brand. I'd, I'd say that's probably the best way to go, yeah. Or just buy the eggs and put them in a mason jar. Or do that. That works as well. Anyways, that's my bit. There was definitely a rabbit hole to this one. A lot of twists and turns. Yep, Alice would be very proud of that rabbit hole. But yeah, that was really cool. It was a yeah, I I did not expect a story like that when you mentioned pets. Yeah, it didn't really I didn't really know what else to link it to. There's a lot. It was pretty much all history, but I think it was a cool history that most people would overlook. So am I up then? Yep, you're up. Okay. when I was doing research and trying to pick a topic, I was just generally looking at people who've had really crazy pets and the more unusual animals and plants that people keep in their homes. You picked a plant? No, I did not pick a plant. Okay. This is all based on animals. When you hear about people having crazy pets, like, what kind of situations do you think of? Backwater Florida man. Okay. Yep. I think uh, Joe Exotic Tiger King. Yep. Both are really good. Personally, I think of, like, an eccentric nobleman. First one that comes to mind is Tycho Brahe, who is this Danish astronomer who had a pet drunken moose. Yes, this was a moose that he kept as a pet. And perpetually drunk? That, yes, loved the taste of beer and so was always drunk. And actually eventually sustained mortal injuries by getting too drunk and falling down the stairs. Something like that comes up in my mind. Another one is like a crazy dictator like Emperor Nero and his pet tiger. For those of you who are curious about this, it was basically like the Roman edition of Tiger King. Worth Google, I'd say. Another one is like some kind of wacky celebrity. So think about like Steven Tyler having a pet raccoon or Floyd Mayweather having, well, a pet tiger. I would not consider a raccoon an exotic pet. Not an exotic pet, but certainly an unusual one. 
unusual I'll give it. If I can pick it up out of my trash can, it's, it's not an exotic pet. I don't care what you categorize it as. <sighs> well, Aaron, joke's on you because I found a scarlet macaw in my trash can. <laughs> For legal reasons, I can't discuss why or how it got there. But also, I feel like I should seriously say that no, I have not actually found that before. Yeah, you don't want to get in trouble for that. Anyway, the one place you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear about weird pets is the White House. But as it turns out, there have been several weird pets that have lived at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue over the past, you know, two and a half centuries or so. Presidential pets have been something of a tradition. In recent years, these pets have been relatively normal. Like Obama had a couple of hypoallergenic dogs. Biden currently has a cat. Ooh, <laughs> fancy. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're, they're pretty tame. They're standard household pets, usually, at least in more modern times. Dogs, cats, and horses. Although, there are definitely spectacular exceptions that I'll get to in a minute. In fact, only four presidents have never had any pets while they were in office. Those presidents are Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, Chester A. Arthur, and Donald Trump. He never had any pets while he was president. That's surprising. You'd think he got something. Nope. Never had any pets. Huh. The other thing, too, is that although it's technically four, at least in my estimation, this number could be five, depending on how you define Andrew Johnson's soft spot for mice. President Johnson would leave flour out for a family of white mice that lived in his room. Apparently, they provided some level of comfort to him while he was being impeached by Congress. That's but, what he has a soft spot for? Yeah. Honestly, I'm inclined to believe that he just had an awful pest problem. His daughter Martha actually made determined efforts to rid the White House of the rodents, including poison, cats, and things like that. It's not known if he was successful. Really, it just seems like President Johnson really could have used a hug. No, and, I, I don't think you want to give him a hug, Rustin. Well, he could have used one. I'm not saying I would have wanted to, but, you know, he was a lonely guy. He was being impeached and, un and you know, under public ridicule. And he was having to, you know, go to Largely mice living reason. in his Yeah, but he was having to go, like, you know, hang out with the mice in his room to get some kind of comfort. That's a little sad, you know. With that being said, let's actually get into the presidents who were doing their best imitations of Roman emperors when they were picking their pets. So... I'm going to list my personal top five craziest presidential pets, in my opinion. This is my opinion. You can choose how to order them however you like. If you disagree, you can, you know, write us an email about it or, you know, talk about it on your own podcast. Yeah, so. get out of here, you nerd. <laughs> you don't like the list? Turn it off. <laughs> but seriously, though, keep listening. It's going to be it's going to be pretty funny. So at number five is Woodrow Wilson. So, Woodrow Wilson is known for being president during World War I, among other things. During wartime, money can be kind of tight because of the cost associated with fighting a huge multinational war on another continent. Woodrow Wilson apparently thought that one of the ways he could cut back on costs was by firing the guy who cut the White House lawn, and instead bringing in 48 sheep to cut the lawn instead. Did it work? Yeah, I mean, they kept the lawn relatively short. You know, they were just sheep on the White House lawn for a few years. Take One notes, Congress. This is how we <laughs> cut back the debt. Right, exactly. One of these sheep was a ram that was known as Old Ike, who apparently had a certain liking for chewing tobacco instead of grass. He was just apparently just a crazy nicotine fiend for some reason. And actually, the wool from these sheep raised over $50,000 for the American Red Cross. You know what? It sounds like a good investment. Yeah, exactly. So... Unless you're one of the landscapers who was fired, this story is kind of wholesome, actually. So I think it deserved a spot on the list, but it's number five. So then at number four, we have Martin Van Buren. So in any conversation about crazy pets, like I said before, one animal always seems to make an appearance, which is the tiger. You always talk about tigers when crazy pets are, are discussed. Absolutely. And of course... This one is no different because President Martin Van Buren was gifted two tiger cubs by the Sultan of Oman at the beginning of his presidency. Turns out that Van Buren had a real Joe Exotic reaction to these cubs as he began making arrangements to move them into the White House. However, at this point, Congress intervened and said that the tiger cubs were not Van Buren's personal property, but rather the property of the United States. And as property of the United States, Congress would get to decide what to do with them, and they wouldn't get to stay in the White House. So, 
Van Buren, in classic Joe Exotic fashion, fought this action by Congress, but ultimately lost out, and the Cubs were sent to a local zoo. I thought he was going to veto it. I guess that two-third override came in clutch. (laughs) Yeah, it really did. But this is insane. Like, a serious constitutional crisis was sparked by two tiger cubs. Oh, what what parties were there at the time? Uh, At that time, there was like... Feds and anti... No, this was... Feds and anti-feds? I want to say it was like the Whigs and the Democrats. Yeah, there were no Republicans yet. Yeah, I can see the the two party leaders going. No, Martin, you can't keep the Tiger Cubs in the White House. Just disappointed they had to put a whole pause on all the legislation for that day. They just tell him no. Yeah, and then after, <laughs> and then after Congress took the Cubs away from him, he just looked into the camera dramatically and said, "I'm never going to financially recover from this." <laughs> So while the story of Tiger Cubs sparking a constitutional debate about separation of powers is incredible, the fact that Van Buren never actually moved the Cubs into the White House means that this story earns the fourth spot on the list. So, number three, this guy was bound to make an appearance here. It's Teddy Roosevelt. I knew it. He had to. He absolutely did. And this one is glorious. This is definitely, definitely earns a spot in the top three. Upon returning from a trip west... Teddy Roosevelt brought back a special gift and gave it to his son, Archie. That gift was, any guesses? Bear. No, although that is a really good guess. It was a badger, and he named the badger Josiah. So, the young boy and his father were very fond of this badger, although I'm not really sure that the feeling was mutual. So, the boy had a habit of carrying around the badger by its sides, not unlike Rafiki carrying Simba at the start of Lion King. Not terribly comfortable. Right. Really, really awkward for the badger. When the badger was on the ground, it would run around with Archie and try to bite his legs. The badger was actually a terror to ankles (laughs) everywhere when he was loose, to the point where it even tried to jump and bite Archie's ankles when he had them hanging out of a hammock. So they just had this little ankle-biting badger running around the White House. Where did they get the badger from? It was, um, I think it was actually a gift from a political supporter that he met at a rally. That's like, a really shitty gift. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, ap- but apparently Teddy Roosevelt really, really liked the badger because he brought it back to the White House and gave it to his son. <laughs> it just turned out that the badger was like a little fiend. No, that's very much a last minute. Oh my God, the president's coming. What do we have? What do we get him? And some guy's digging under his porch. He's like, well, this guy's been under here for three weeks. <laughs> you know, that could very well have happened. It's probably between that and a possum, but they thought the possum died and they couldn't give it to him. Yeah, the story that I heard was that it was like a young girl who met Teddy Roosevelt and gave him the badger. But that sounds like it could very easily be a political legend and not reality. So I think your story is just as possible. Just as likely. <laughs> yeah. They want to get on his good side. Right, right. Anyway, so for some reason, Archie was still really fond of the badger, even as it was actively chasing him and trying to bite his ankles. Archie actually insisted that Josiah would only bite ankles, but honestly, that's probably just the highest point that the badger could reach. Eventually, the ankle biting got so bad that they had to give Josiah to a zoo. But even after this, the Roosevelt's still made a point of visiting him regularly. I guess they really did love him. They really did. It was a mutual no, I don't I don't think it was at all. Moving on to number two on the list, we have John Quincy Adams. So, before I talk about this story, I'm going to say that it's more of an urban legend than anything else, but overall, still very much worth talking about. At one point during his presidency, John Quincy Adams hosted the Marquis de Lafayette, a hero of the Revolutionary War at the White House. As an honored guest, Lafayette brought a gift for the president of the country he had helped free from British rule you would think this gift would be something remarkable, right? What do you think he gave him? Frog. That would be your first guess, wouldn't it? He's French. He loves it. Well, Snail. Yeah, yeah. The Beast of Gévaudan throwback. <laughs> Bigger throwback, Lafayette even attempted to hunt it. <laughs> I mentioned in that episode. That's true. That's true. He did. Well, he's giving this to the President of the United States. And so he gave him an alligator. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As good as gift as any, I suppose. 
Not really, no. But <laughs> No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not a good one. Anyway, according to legend, John Quincy Adams kept it in a White House bathtub. He intentionally did not tell his guests about his unusual pet just to have it scare the shit out of them when they went to use the bathroom. So he just had this live gator in his tub. And then when he was sent guests in there, he would just watch them run out screaming like there was some <laughs> giant reptile in there. You know? Well, there was. Right. Anyway, this whole thing sounds less like a story about the president than a Florida man article. You know, you can just see that Florida man scares house guests with a bathtub gator. That has to have happened. It, yeah, there's no way it hasn't happened. So one of the people traveling with Lafayette apparently kept a really detailed diary and made absolutely no mention of an alligator being gifted to the president. So it probably didn't happen. There's no like definite evidence for it. So it's more likely fiction or some kind of urban legend, like I said before, than actual reality, which means that at least for me, it earns the second spot on the list. It can't quite reach number one. But uh, anyway, now we will get to the top spot on the list. So, Knowing me, what do you think this this animal is? It's got to. It's definitely a bird. It's got to be a bald eagle. What's more patriotic than that? No. Well, okay. I'll let you guess again after I tell you that the president is Andrew Jackson. I'm gonna say a turkey then. Uh, no, it's a parrot. He had a pet parrot because in a lot of cases, the White House when Andrew Jackson occupied it seemed more like a frat house than an actual hall of government. This theme extends to his pet parrot named Paul, which he kept around him all the time. Now, as most people know, parrots are mimics and can repeat words they hear from people. Oh, no. Andrew Jackson was notoriously foul-mouthed, so his parrot developed quite an extensive vocabulary of swear words over time. Because parrots live very long lives, the parrot actually outlived Jackson. <laughs> now... <laughs> Paul, the parrot, was actually so well-liked by Andrew Jackson that it was given the honor of attending Jackson's funeral after his death in 1845. Paul returned this favor by unleashing a torrent of cuss words <laughs> so foul that it had to be removed from the vicinity. It's what he would have wanted. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so <laughs> You're supposed to remember someone at a funeral. What better way? Right. You're supposed to honor the person that they were. And, well... This parrot was certainly doing that, if you ask me. But I guess most people thought that this parrot just hated Andrew Jackson. So, <laughs> you know, maybe it's another presidential pet that just hated its owner. Kind of like the badger. At least for me, all in all, a swearing parrot in the White House just absolutely takes the cake. It's hard to top that. It's without a doubt the craziest White House pet. Like you mentioned, I could be biased because it's a bird, but I don't really care. It's absolutely amazing and earns the top spot on the list. Honestly, I'd say my favorite is Andrew Johnson and the family of mice just living in his bedroom. I didn't want to officially put that on the list because, I, honestly, I don't even think you can really call those pets. Just a sad old man leaving crumbs out by the side of his bed. Yeah, because no one wants to talk to him. Like that, That's just really sad. I don't want to I don't want to make people depressed. I just wanted to give it a casual mention, you know? I didn't want to go into details there. I'm putting that one in the title. Of course you are. It's President Johnson. <laughs> Woo! Represent. <laughs> you guys have the same surname, so of course you got you sense a kindred spirit. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's more of a joke than anything else. I don't see much in common between you and Andrew Johnson. Thanks, but who among us has not left out a little plate of crumbs for the mice? I imagine there are actually very few people who have done that intentionally. You leave crumbs around your house for mice all the time. You just don't realize you're doing it. You just don't do it on purpose. Right. Uh, unless you're Andrew Johnson, apparently. And their little friends. Or Aaron Johnson, apparently. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm lonely. I'm stressed out. I just leave a little snack for them. Yep. I rest they... assured knowing someone's eating good tonight. Yeah, and then you sit up all night, and when the mice come along, you play your little flute, and they start dancing. <laughs> Do we? Did he do that? <laughs> Not as far I, as I know. I choose to believe he did. <laughs> and when he, the impeachment finally came, then his army was ready. <laughs> <laughs> he was playing the long con. He was gathering his forces. But yeah, that's my full list of crazy White House pets. 
All right, very cool. I really like that. So I thought there would have been more like uh, lions or elephants or stuff like that. So there were two presidents who had full-on menageries as president. And one of them, of course, was Teddy Roosevelt. The other was Calvin Coolidge. But there's not really that much to talk about there in a lot of those cases. Like, you could just say, oh, Teddy Roosevelt had all these really exotic animals at the White House. You know, whereas for me, it was more worth talking about the crazy stuff that those pets did or the crazy details surrounding those pets, you know, like the fact that Woodrow Wilson fired his entire groundskeeping staff and brought in some sheep, you know, like that's a really funny story. But like the fact that, you know, Calvin Coolidge had a pet lion that really didn't do much. It's not as fun, you know? Yeah, not quite as much sustenance to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I felt like leaving those more extreme examples out of this and talking about the ankle biting badger. But yeah, that's my piece. All right. Super cool. I really liked it. Cool. Cool. Hey, this is more of a history episode, but you know what? That, I like those every now and then. It's fun. Yeah, we've we've thrown those in every once in a while. I like the niche aspects of everything, you know? Yeah. You're never going to learn about this like any conventional way. It, these They're all footnotes. You're just bringing the light. Exactly. Plus, like, you know, it, it's a nice tie in for all the people who really like history and also listen to the podcast, you know, a little something for them. Keep them going. Right. All the people who were, you know, who started listening to the podcast with the Beast of Gévaudan now finally have a, a story that suits them, you know. Also, I believe on Spotify, this is on me. I screwed this up. You're allowed to pick two categories. I On the, the site we set it up originally with, you could pick three, but the third one didn't translate over. So it says we're a history comedy podcast. We're not. I tried to fix it on the <laughs> website, but that didn't work, obviously. <laughs> so hopefully they just read the description. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, we have discussed history. It's just very, very old history before humans were around. Technically, and it's always focused usually through science or it's relating to it or nature. Right, right. Or some kind of crazy animals that were in the White House. Exactly. Anyway, what are you thinking about for the next episode? I'll tell you what, you said marshes, right? I did, yeah. I think we can make marshes work. All right. Sounds good to me. I'll get something cooking. With that being decided, do you want to take us out? Alrighty. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow and review on your podcast app of choice. If you have an idea for a future episode, you can reach us at souppotpodcast at twitter.com or email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. All right. Sounds great. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. Bye.